Greetings and welcome to the Animal Wellness Podcast, the official podcast of Animal Wellness Action. Hi, I'm your host, Joseph Grove. On this show, we talk about animals and the people who care about them and have the ability to improve their lives by influencing culture and supporting pro-animal laws and regulations. To stay up to date with all of our news and information, subscribe to this podcast, receive our free newsletters and more, visit animalwellnessaction.org. With me today are Wayne Paselli and Marty Irby. Wayne is the founder of Animal Wellness Action. Marty is its executive director and the chief lobbyist in D.C. Before we get into the topic du jour, uh, I want to um, uh, kind of touch base on a couple of other topics we've covered on previous shows. I'll turn to Marty first. Apparently, according to the Washington Post, since the premiere and the explosion of the Tiger King on Netflix, interest and support for the Big Cat Public Safety Act has really skyrocketed. A lot of legislators are reporting uh, that they're hearing a lot more about that. And of course, if folks want to hear our interview with Carol Baskin, find episode four of our podcast and you can hear her describe her history, uh, not only with uh, Joe Exotic, but her lifelong efforts to help big cats. Marty, what are you hearing on the Hill this week? Yeah, we've really heard a lot. I know most of my friends and colleagues on Capitol Hill have watched the Tiger King series. Um, Some of them were appalled by it. Some of them found it entertaining and some found it both. But I did see where the Washington Post today had Congressman Quigley, uh, who is the House lead sponsor, quoted saying that he had not watched it. He didn't want to watch anything like that, but had been fully briefed and that he felt it really was helping the bill gain some momentum and steam in Congress, as well as Senator Blumenthal, who leads the bill in the upper chamber. So we're excited about that bill and hope we can see that move in the near future. Wayne and I had a call with the chairman of the Committee of Jurisdiction, Mr. Grijalva, the other night, and things sounded very positive on that front as well. Another thing, we've talked the last couple of episodes about the coronavirus, and I saw an interesting story coming out of New York where it looks like two house cats have tested positive for having the coronavirus. We had heard before that some zoo cats had contracted it. Uh, This is the first instance where cats who are of a domestic nature have had it. Uh, Wayne, are you up to speed on this? What are you hearing from your experts? Yeah, we had known all along that cats were susceptible to contracting it. But, you know, while animals were the pathway of this uh, starting into the human community, It doesn't appear that they are very infectious in terms of now these domesticated animals moving into people. So it's it's not an absolute dead end host situation, but it's pretty close to it. And with so many uh, millions now of people being infected and so few cases of animals being infected, it's just not a threat and a risk. And uh, it's been, I think, very good to see the media responsibly handling that issue, not being alarmist. Uh, we're not having a run on people turning their animals into shelters or urging their euthanasia or seeing abandonment as a consequence of their fears. Yeah. And just as you should not do this for yourself, folks at home, do not inject Clorox into your pets. No matter what you hear, <laughs> keep the Lysol away from 
uh, your animals. Don't do that. In all seriousness, until they understand fully what's going on with the pets, the CDC recommends the following. Don't let your pets interact with people or other animals outside the household. Keep cats indoors when possible to prevent them from interacting with other animals or people. Avoid dog parks or public places where a large number of people and dogs gather. <clears throat> I can't imagine a cat ever wanting to go to a dog park. Seems like the last place a cat would want to go is to a dog park. Uh, when possible, have another member of your household care for your pets. While you are sick, avoid contact with your pet, including petting, snuggling, being kissed or licked. Now, come on. Have we no fun during this, this epidemic? So, at any rate, uh, if you've got cats, keep them indoors. Uh, stop them from uh, perhaps catching the COVID-19 uh, there. Speaking of pets, I want to transition us now to the topic of the day, uh, and that concerns greyhounds. Greyhounds, of course, are known to be the fastest dog. Uh, they've been raced as a sport for years in conditions that would probably, I would guess in many instances, make the sparse conditions racehorses are kept in look positively opulent. But the good news is, and our special guest here today to talk about that, is that these tracks are diminishing in number. The number of states where races are held is diminishing. All of that inuring to the betterment, the better conditions, the greater life uh, quality for these, these magnificent dogs. Marty Irby, you actually have some personal experience with watching Greyhound racing. Tell us about that experience. Yeah, Joe, as many of you know, I grew up in South Alabama in a city named Mobile, and there they had the Mobile Greyhounds Park in a small suburb named Theodore, where a lot of the elected officials back then went to the Greyhound track, and many county commissioners, state legislators, and I believe in, even our congressman at one point was there. So it was a well-known uh, venue, and in 1997, when I turned 18 for my 18th birthday, uh, my father and other people had talked about it so long, they took me to the Mobile Greyhound Park for my 18th birthday. And I guess that was the only thing in that area that when you turned 18, there was to do that was now legal that you couldn't do before. So uh, I did go and went and I was pretty appalled, actually. I mean, it was nothing like what I expected. It was very uh, dark and smoke-filled rooms, a lot of television monitors where they had simulcasting in a live Greyhound racing but there were also a lot of truckers and passers-by. It was in a location near one of the corridors on Interstate 10. So um, it was very transient. But um, I never went back and never had any desire to go back to any Greyhound track. It was just an interesting experience. And in my home state of Alabama, there were also, I believe, tracks that time in Montgomery, uh, the one in Birmingham, possibly a few more. So it was a big part of the culture in the southeast in the 80s and 90s. And we're really glad to see that it's fading out into the sunset. Sure. And helping kick that show down the road is our special guest. His name is Carrie Teal. Uh, he is the co-founder of Gray2K USA, which began in 2001. Uh, he has been sourced in thousands of news articles about greyhound racing and has authored guest columns about the industry published in the Orlando Sentinel, Charleston Daily Mail, Sun Sentinel, Dubuque Telegraph Herald, the Tallahassee Democrat, Mobile Press Register, and on and on. The guy is sought out as an expert on this issue. 
He has extensive legislative experience, has testified in favor of stronger Greyhound protection laws before legislative committees in Alabama, Florida, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, and Oregon. I feel like I'm doing that old Johnny Cash song, um, I've Been Everywhere Man. Uh, in his free time, hard to believe he has any, Kerry volunteers for various nonprofit organizations and is a national master in chess. So we, we, we're, we're down to four tracks, Kerry. How did you do that? How did you get us down to four tracks? Well, I think, uh, and thank you for having me on today. It's it's truly uh, an honor. Um, you know, it's it's been 20 years of hard work and political pressure and, you know, coalition building with with other organizations and other, uh, you know, public interest groups. Uh, you know, groups like Animal Wellness have been an important ally of, of ours and still are to this day. When we started this fight, uh, the Greyhound Racing Industry, was was very powerful. It was a multi-billion-dollar industry. At, at one time, it was the the sixth largest spectator sport in the United States. And you know, I, I think there were parts of the animal welfare community that that didn't want to take it on. That viewed that viewed moving to outlaw something that economically powerful, politically powerful, culturally significant as, as just too too tough a task. Um, but we we rolled up our sleeves and we we found great allies and we. We just took it one step at a time, one day at a time, and you know, fought in all of these state legislatures to reform the industry, to, to improve conditions for the dogs, and to phase out the industry altogether. And you know, over many years, and a, a lot of amazing victories, but also a lot of defeats, um, we were able to slowly chip away at this industry and, and bring it to a point where it's now clear Greyhound Racing will end in the United States. The question is, how many more years is that going to take and how many dogs are going to suffer in the meantime? What draw you to greyhounds? There's so many topics relative to animal abuse where you could have put your obviously considerable talent. Why did you choose this one? Well, it's th- very kind of you. Um, it, it shows me, to be honest. I mean, uh, uh, Christine Dorchak and I, when we founded uh, Great DK USA, we, we both came out of a local fight in, in our home state of Massachusetts, which was really the, the, the first time that anyone has had stood up to the greyhound racing industry in a meaningful way. Um, it was an all, all volunteer effort. We, we brought a ballot question uh, and, and we lost 5149 um, and were sued for a $10 million lawsuit. And it was a very, you know, complicated, messy fight. But even though that was a heart, heartbreaking defeat, it did prove to us that it was possible to take on an industry like this and win. And, you know, I people love their dogs. I mean, do- dogs are members of the family. They're they're a part of our lives, and and I, I think people look at this industry and see uh, dogs treated in a way that they wouldn't treat uh, the, their own companions. And so, in that regard, I think the industry you know contains within itself the seeds of its own destruction. But uh, this fight chose us, both of us, really, as opposed to the other way around. Now, you you ended up marrying this person, did you not? I, I did, and uh, which I mean. So Carrie, did did you do did you do it to get the girl? Come on. Uh, well, th- that's a good story, but <laughs> no, I mean, look, I, I I've been very very blessed, um, you know, through this work to meet some incredible people, uh, you know, including Christine, of course, and I mean that's that's um, really an amazing benefit, but, you know, I, I think both of us, uh, one of the reasons why we've had 
some success as we, we both believe that we're doing something that's larger than ourselves and and more important than ourselves. You know, to, to have that and find that is really just an, an incredible fortunate thing when it happens. Yeah, I've done some really stupid stuff to get girls. At least you at least you help the world. So, Carrie, that makes you a better man than I am. Uh, you also, during the course of your career, uh, you first met uh, Wayne Pasali back in 1996. I'm going to turn it over uh, to Wayne. Talk about your experience with this and um, what it was like collaborating early on with... Carrie. Well, Carrie and, and Christine, whom I had known from a 1996 ballot initiative in Massachusetts to stop the use of steel jaw traps, other body gripping traps, and institute other reforms, Christine had already established herself as one of the leading animal advocates in the country. Carrie was just a teenager. He was 17 when I met him. And uh, you could tell that uh, this is an incredibly bright young man with such a bright future. And uh, we benefited by having him on a winning campaign to protect wildlife in Oregon to protect mountain lions and, and black bears. And then he and Christine really began to take on this greyhound issue. And at the time, there were a number of greyhound groups, but they were all doing rescue, which is noble, important work. They were taking dogs from the track and they were getting them adopted. And while that is crucial work, it was never going to turn around the problem. And I think Christine and Carrie really saw that you need policy solutions. And this is really where Carrie's uh, and Christine's strategic interests overlap with Animal Wellness Action, that we want to prevent cruelty. We want to have policies to forbid inhumane practices. And Carrie and Christine are truly two of the most exceptional activists in the global movement for animals. You will not have two more strategic uh, people. You also will not see two more resilient people. They have taken on a big industry and you look now and you think, oh my gosh, well in 2001, there are 50 tracks. That's an average of one track in every state. So imagine that. I mean, that it wasn't quite as evenly distributed as that. But now once these new policies, the ban in Florida that, that Carrie and Christine were so instrumental in, the negotiation in Arkansas that, that uh, we did with Great 2K USA, uh, phasing out the track there, it's down to four, from 50 to four, since they started their organization 19 years ago. I mean, this is a triumph. And when you think about animal activism and a focused organization taking on one of the big industries, there really is no better example of one grassroots type organization achieving something so meaningful. And, you know, you mentioned that Kerry is a master chess player. He really is. And he has thought about this and between him and Christine and the rest of their team at Great 2K USA, it's been a marvel. But I've seen because I've been at their shoulder, at their side in so many of these fights, it was so disappointing in Florida, which was the big state. You know, they have it right there. The legislature is just about to do something. And then something disassembled the larger reforms on gaming. But they dusted themselves off. They came back. And as he said, you know, this industry is going to end, and it's because of, of those two people more than anyone in the United States. Marty, um, you're being a firsthand observer of this and, and being the animal welfare expert you are. Talk about the conditions these, these dogs endure as part of their career and leading up to it. Well, they really have a terrible life. Many of them spend 20 to 23 hours a day in a cage that they can barely stand up in and turn around almost like factory farmed pigs and other animals. They're in a similar situation. 
they are forced to go out onto the track. Many of them are drugged, just like what we see in horse racing that we've talked about a lot. And then they chase this uh, rabbit. It's an automatic fate rabbit that uh, goes around the track, and they, they run in their mind thinking that they're chasing this rabbit. And, of course, you know there are a few people in the stands that are gambling on them. But from what I've seen at the few tracks that I've uh, observed versus, uh, on video and in person, on Greyhounds, uh, it's a much lower grade than horse racing. Uh, most of the facilities are very old and dank, and the conditions are just terrible for these dogs. So there's, in my mind, no part of their life that is happy and full of pleasure uh, like most animals are out in nature or even our companion animals at home. Yeah, many of them suffer from fleas, ticks, internal parasites, and are not provided basic veterinary care, human affection, or adequate sustenance. Greyhounds live 13 or more years, uh, but they're usually around 18 months to 5 years old when they are retired. What happens to them after that is anyone's guess. Uh, There are many rescue groups that put greyhound dogs out as companion animals. Others, however, are euthanized because it's it's apparently easier to do that than to go through the process of rehoming them. So uh, all of this is to say that the work uh, carry and Gray 2K USA. Um, talk to folks who may be a part of other advocacy areas. What can you tell them, top two, three, five things, that they ought to be mindful of if they want to achieve success along the lines of what you have achieved? I hope that our work uh, is is part of the ongoing dialogue about animal welfare. I I do think it's unique. It it doesn't have the most number of of abused animals, certainly. There's other animal abuse industries that treat animals even more abusively, for sure. But I, I do think our work is an example of taking on a politically powerful, culturally significant, economically significant industry and saying, you know, you, we're not going to reform you. You, 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 because you treat animals in such an abusive way as commodities, you have ceased, uh, you know, you no longer have a right to exist in our society. And uh, I, I think that that's, you know, a powerful message to send. I think one of the things that helped us early on is we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we, we were not afraid to make mistakes. We were not afraid to lose. And so we you know, tried a lot of different approaches and, you know, a lot of those didn't work and, and some did work. You know, I, I think all of these issues, there's going to be a different you know, toolkit that's, that's needed um, to address it and, and fight for these animals. But, you know, all of these are ultimately about fighting for justice and fighting for change, um, and fighting to give a voice to, to, to the voiceless. Um, we, we certainly have learned from, from the work of everyone else, and I, I, I try to watch what everyone else is doing and, and, and take the good ideas I see elsewhere, and if, if people learn anything from our work, that would be, that would be wonderful. No, I was just going to say, I think there was a real clarity of purpose to their work. They wanted to see grand racing end. Um, the cruelty is not evident. You know, it's not staring you in the face, right? You go to a slaughterhouse, you go to a factory farm, you see it. Uh, you go to a wet market, you see it. Uh, this is a little different. I mean, animals are who are athletes are supposed to be well-kept, right? I mean, they're robust, they're athletic, and in order for them to perform, they should be maintained that way. And the industry pushed back with those sorts of arguments time and time again. And I've been to greyhound uh, breeding farms where they have these incredibly long um, runs where the 
you know, it might be a hundred yards long for the, the, the dogs to, to run. And it was not immediately or obviously cruel. And there are other elements where you see it and you think, okay, this is not that bad. But I think what Karen and Christine is they kept peeling back the layers of this and they found on track injuries were so much more than anyone expected that the dogs were hurtling around the tracks they were breaking their backs, they were breaking legs, they were dying on the track, and they began to pull these elements together. I think, Joe, when you asked what they did, I think the research was important. So they, they had clarity of purpose, they researched this, so they knew the issues as well as anyone in the industry, and then they began to really understand how the levers of power work. And they then tied in the economic arguments, they showed it was a dying industry, that it was subsidized by other gaming interest, that there was very little interest in it. And when you pull all those strands together, that's where you get success. But again, the key factor to me was resiliency. They kept fighting. They lost the ballot measure 5149 in Massachusetts, and they went back and they did it until they won. And they kept losing in Florida, on, you know, which was the big state. They had, the, they had a, a majority of the tracks during this 19-year period that Great 2K USA has been in operation. And they literally would get knocked over and they just keep coming back at you. And the incredible moment was the win in Florida on a ballot initiative in November of 2018. It was 69% yes to ban Greyhound Racing statewide, the 31 no. That means, you know, in Florida, which is a swing state, the one in Republican counties and Democrat counties, had to get a supermajority, 60% to win, got 69 in a state where many of the major metropolitan areas had a great Greyhound tracks that had been operating for decades. They had built-in press capability. They had spokespeople. They had businesses. You had breeders who were saying, this is our livelihood, yet they got thrashed. And I really think that, that Carrie and Christine's very – uh, very smart work at every step of the way, outstanding communications work was the key to success. Well, and you know, Wayne, our, our best teacher was the industry itself, ironically. Um, I mean, our, our approach was always to try and merge a grassroots effort, which is where we started and, and still a fundamental part of who we are with a think tank approach and really just understanding the industry better than it understands itself with a mainstream, you know, political approach, you know, with all of the things that come with that. But um, the fact that we were taking on an industry that was so sophisticated politically really forced us. Like the only way we were ever going to, to win any kind of reforms was, was to really get good at that process and, and, and make mistakes until we found our way through. And so I, I, I think in a strange way, you know, in, in the same way that you know, Michael Jordan was helped by having to, to overcome the Detroit Pistons in the late 80s. I think in the same way, you know, having to confront an industry that was so politically sophisticated forced us um, to, to, to gain those skills ourselves. Sure. And then in February 2015, um, you reached maybe a climactic milestone in that research and that educational process when you uh, released High Stakes. Talk about that document, how it came together, and the impact it had. Well, we are, our research is so extensive. Uh, I mean, for years, we, we've had full-time research staff, and, and all, all they do are 
do public information requests uh, to, to state regulators, watch industry websites. I mean, I, I want to know literally everything. I want to have every single document these regulators produce. I, I, I want to know every single statement that's being made by the industry. And, and we're constantly questioning our own assumptions and, and trying to understand this industry better. And, and, and that really in-depth policy approach I, I think not, not only is helpful in terms of the advocacy piece, but 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 keeps you grounded and and and, and keeps it focused on the issue. Um, one of our early founders, you know, said that the, the issue is the boss, and I mean that that's that's always. I mean, for us, it's always been, you know, how how do you understand the issue better first before you do anything else? Well, one one thing I'll tell you, you know, I have orchestrated, you know, most of the ballot measures in the animal movement through my career. And really the only couple that were successful that I didn't orchestrate were ones that Carrie and Christine, they, they pushed the Massachusetts one. And I was a little leery, to be honest with you, because the polling showed only about 50, 55% of the people in Massachusetts would vote to ban ground racing. And my rule had been that you've got to start with 65% yes. Before you do any of your campaigns, people have to be there because the industry will then throw so many arguments that they will drive that yes number down. And if they drive it down seven, eight points and you're at 55, you lose. That's why you have to have the buffer, which is when we did ballot on farm animals or canned hunts or steel jump traps. We always framed our question in a way that could get that support. Carrie showed and Christine showed that you could actually grow support during a campaign. And they did that in the Massachusetts campaign. They started with a number that wasn't that great, but they actually exceeded that on the ballot. And then what happened in, in Florida, which was, again, this was, the, this was the fight in the future and past of Grand Racing. This was it because uh, in November 18, they had 12 of the 18 tracks, 67% of the tracks in the United States. The numbers were in the 50s at best, and we needed 60 to win. And we got 69, which was incredible. It was a blow through the roof moment. And uh, this to me was, uh, was a great lesson that um, it may have been an exceptional lesson in some ways, but that once people really heard an effective case, you could actually grow your support. Because most people, if they're confused about an issue, vote no. In order to get a yes vote on a ballot measure, someone has to be quite certain. So to get 69% in the stronghold in the state was incredible. And I think to me, as Kerry said, it was really an indicator of the ascendancy of our ideals as a movement, that we're not going to tolerate these gratuitous uses of animals any longer, where the animals are put at risk for some sort of you know, mild form of entertainment for humans. And it was just a couple of years before that Ringling Brothers went belly up, and we had negotiated the deal against SeaWorld to stop the breeding of orcas. And I think that this killing or injuring or harming of animals for entertainment is just receding. And I think the greyhound racing issue, thanks to Carrie and Christine and their team, has been a great example of how dedicated focus on that issue can yield tremendous results. Uh, where can greyhound racing be found internationally? How's the industry faring over there? Well, when we first started, uh, there was a grassroots movement against greyhound racing in the United States, and that was globally really it. Uh, I mean, there were advocates here and there, but there was no organized opposition really anywhere. That has completely changed uh, today. 
there, there is organized opposition to, to commercial greyhound racing and, and effective opposition uh, all over the world. Uh, there, there's a, a large commercial greyhound racing industry in the United Kingdom with dogs primarily bred in Ireland. There are tracks in Ireland as well, but generally the dogs are bred in Ireland and race in the United Kingdom. Um, there, there's a large greyhound racing industry in Australia. And, and unfortunately, while the American industry is dying and, and, and the UK and I, Irish industry is dying, um, the Australian industry is is growing, and it's the Australian. It's very odd. There's tremendous opposition, much more opposition than there was here in the United States, say 20 years ago, and yet uh, the industry economically is doing is doing very well and still showing growth, uh, largely because. Australians gamble at a rate that is just much higher than any other country in the world. We're doing what we can to help in those in those fights. Uh, beyond those three big markets, there's a single track in uh, Vietnam, which is, I, I think, today probably the worst dog track in the world and, and, and a place that needs further scrutiny. Um, we were able to shut down the only legal dog track in China, which was in Macau. It was called the Canadrome. Uh, all of the dogs came from Australia. Uh, they, they were shipped to this track in Macau, all the dogs would die. We paired up with a fantastic uh, local uh, ally uh, named Albano Martins and Anima Macau. There was a global movement really to end that particular track. Uh, one of the dogs that left that track was sort of the poster child of the campaign actually to shut down the track. Uh, when we won, we went in and this dog named Brooklyn was, was still alive, incredibly. Um, Brooklyn came home with us. He, a couple weeks after arriving here, uh, was diagnosed with bone cancer. Uh, so he had amputation and chemo, um, and, but he's really a survivor and he's such a sweet dog, despite the fact that he you know, lived for eight years in a cement cell. And again, in the worst dog track in the world, it's really remarkable that he survived that. And I think he is an inspiration for us to keep fighting and, and keep working until not only Greyhound Racing ends here in the United States, but, but ends worldwide. Yeah. So you're, you're, you're a young man, Carrie, um, and you're making a lot of headway on this issue. When you get to a point where you think you've done all the good you can do with Greyhound Racing, what's next for you? That, that would be a good problem to have. <laughs> I, you know, we, we take it one day at a time. It's just been an incredible honor to do this work. It's an honor to partner with Wayne and Marty and everyone in animal, animal wellness and, and our, all of our allies throughout the world. And uh, Wayne talked about the, the sort of time we're in with all of this change. I mean, I, I, I think we're all riding the wave of this fundamental change that's happening within society. Um, that's larger than us. Um, it's sort of re-examining when it comes to all of these animal welfare issues. But I think one thing that, that your work, Wayne, shows, and, and hopefully our, our work show, shows too, is that that change isn't self-executing. Um, it requires you know, people to go in and, and fight for these policies and, and do the, the public policy work that, that's not always fun and exciting, but, but is what ultimately you know, make, makes a difference in the lives of these animals. I was just reading a biography, it's not out yet, a, a manuscript of Henry Berg and his fight between 1866, when as a, as a middle-aged guy, and then some, he was 57 when he started his work at the ASPCA, forming the first animal welfare group in the U.S., and he died um, in 1888, just 22 years later. And he took an incredible amount 
of abuse on head on. It was remarkable. He was on the front lines. He was juggling. He was fighting, you know, the mistreatment of horses, of course, but he was also looking at mistreatment of livestock at a time when, you know, we had stockyards, animals being slaughtered right in the cities, right in front of, of people, uh, the turtle trade, live pigeon shoots. And he saw little in the way of kind of finishing off industries. And I know that when I started my activism as a college student in the uh, in the mid 1980s, I mean, we were a protest movement. You know, we were just trying to be part of the discussion. We were trying to shed light on issues and hope that it would appeal to people's sensibilities. Now, uh, years later, we're winning. But still, when you think of finishing off industries um, that are doing horrible things, it's difficult. I mean, we have outlawed animal fighting finally everywhere in the United States with the federal law that we got passed in 2018 to outlaw dog fighting and cock fighting in every jurisdiction in the U.S. Carrie and Christine, and with a, a small amount of assistance from us, are going to see, I think, the end soon of greyhound racing. This is a major moment in our movement to see an actual legal industry uh, that, you know, should go away, actually go away. This is a moment where those of you who are listening, who are new to the movement and who are expecting gains, good, you should expect gains. And it's, it's fabulous. But this was not always the way it was. I mean, just a few years ago, animal activists were marginalized. And many years ago, the pioneers in animal protection were pilloried and, and mocked. And this has really come a long way. And it's exciting to see. Excellent. One final question for you, Carrie, and then I'll turn it over to Martin Wayne for closing thoughts. And my question for you, Carrie, is this. What comparisons and contrasts do you see between greyhound racing and thoroughbred racing? And do you perceive that thoroughbred racing is on the same trajectory as greyhound racing? Animal welfare is a fundamental American value and a fundamental human value. And questions about all of these animal industries are going to be asked in the years to come. And I do think that the horse racing industry should look at the greyhound racing industry and what's happening as a warning sign and a message that if it doesn't reform, it very well could end up suffering the same fate as the dog industry. Now, I will say that there are differences between the two industries. Uh, it's obviously much easier to breed large numbers of dogs than it is large numbers of horses. The, the economics in the industries are different. And I think there's been definitely more willingness in the horse racing industry to just go through an introspective uh, process of looking at what they're doing, what they're not doing, how they can be better. That really didn't happen in the greyhound racing industry at all. And I think the debate over drugs in the horse racing industry, for example, is, is healthy and good and something that, that the dog racing industry is just incapable of, as it was unwilling to change and, and unwilling to reform. Those are my thoughts on that. Uh, Marty, final thoughts on this issue from you, please. Yeah, you know, one of the reasons we wanted to talk about greyhounds today with Carrie, and Carrie, thank you so much for being on, is that back in my home state I talked about earlier in Alabama, greyhound racing was finally brought to an end this week. There was a track just outside of Birmingham, Alabama, the largest city in the state, that had originally been opened as a track that was running horses and greyhounds. They eliminated horse racing many years ago because it wasn't very profitable. And just this week, they announced that they are not bringing greyhound racing back to the facility in live form whenever they reopen after the coronavirus. So that was a huge win. 
I very rarely see any animal protection wins in my home state. It's been unfortunate, but it was really, really big, and we got some great national news out of it. And I know the folks that I've talked to back home in Alabama really thought it was a great thing. So I think that uh, we just need to keep pressing on and pushing as Kerry has done. I admire the great work he and Christine have done. And thanks for having, uh, thanks for coming on today, Kerry. Wayne. Yeah. I mean, I don't throw these words out very often. Uh, you know, I've been in this movement a long time. I've seen a lot and I, I really think that, that Kerry and Christine are, two of the most brilliant, exceptional activists. Christine Dorchak, who didn't join us today, uh, but is an incredible force. Uh, Along with Carrie, they have transformed this industry. And we're so lucky as a movement that these two people have devoted their talents to this issue. And it reminds all of us that individuals, when they are determined and focused and they're blessed with these intellectual abilities, they can transform the world. And their work is not done. Um, This is not a victory lap, but the trajectory is clear. From 60 tracks, you know, perhaps in the 1970s or 80s to 50 tracks when Carrie and Christine started their work in 2001, to get to four is remarkable. And, uh, you know, the industry has said, oh, what's gonna happen to all the dogs? You know, there's 500 dogs per track, they're all gonna be euthanized. And it was just overblown rhetoric. Uh, people have absorbed those dogs into our communities. Uh, no, none of these dogs needs to be euthanized after the tracks shut down. They'll have good lives where they'll be socialized, they'll be loved. And I think that's kind of the fundamental thing. You know, the, the folks who are in this industry, they don't think they're cruel. Many of their normal behaviors are not cruel, uh, but they just think of the dogs as, as racing animals. They're not loved companions. And I think that was the vulnerability of the industry. And I have friends in the industry. I've talked to them. I respect them. I admire them. Uh, but they, they just don't get that Americans expect something different in terms of their relationship with dogs. They're supposed to be loved. They're supposed to be cared for. And even if there's no obvious cruelty, um, that's not enough in this day and age. And uh, again, my hat is off to, to Carrie Teal and Christine Dorchek, the founders of Great 2K USA Worldwide. They've done a great job and so happy that Carrie was able to join us today. Yeah, excellent. Carrie, what's the URL? Where can people go to learn more about your organization and donate and subscribe? Well, thank you. It's an honor to be on today with, with these two good friends. And uh, if you want to learn more, you can go to our website at uh, great2kusa.org. Uh, and Greyhounds are wonderful, loving companions as well. So if you're looking to adopt, consider adopting a greyhound. All right. Gotcha. Excellent. And um, thank you for that. And and I have a favor to ask of our listeners, and that is when you subscribe to us from iTunes, would you give the show a rating? We're not going to ask you to give it a great rating if you don't think it's great. But if when you subscribe to us on iTunes, which if you haven't, why not? Clearly, I got two great geniuses here with me that love animals like you do, so you should be subscribing. Go there. Um, so far, the only ratings we have are from our mothers, and my mom even just gave us a three. She said I sound too nasally, so it's like, thanks, Mom. That's coming out of your, your Mother's Day present. Thank you so much for listening to the Animal Wellness Podcast. I've been your host, Joseph Grove. Be sure to visit animalwellnessaction.org to find out about all of our legislative efforts, subscribe to our newsletters, and link up with our social media channels. 
Want to subscribe to this podcast? Go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, and we'll be back real soon with another episode of the Animal Wellness Podcast.